Leon uh, Wieseltier wrote something that always kind of struck me on the parallel between this kind of thinking, and it wasn't about ta specifically, but uh, kind of thinking that Jews can have as well about um, it's just easier to believe that the world doesn't change than to believe that the world changes slowly or sporadically and fits and spurts. Hello, Jews and all the non-Jews who like passing as Jews and so are listening to this podcast to learn our secret code. This is Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello, this morning. And Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Hashtag Never Trump. Never Trump. Our Jewish guest this week is Justin Sakoffs, who has created the Magnetic Shul, which is this incredible little lunchbox filled with little magnetic people uh, meant to resemble people from a stereotypical synagogue. It, it, it's it's an amazing toy. Um, it's a toy and more, and, and he'll tell us all about it. And our Gentile of the Week is Parisian expat writer Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is joining us on a brief stopover in America. He's making time just for us. Before and his he... name is such a declaration of so goyhood. Good. Thomas Chatterton Williams. Chatterton. Yeah, it's really... Not a lot of Jews with Chatterton. The Chatterton is just rubbing it in, right? Yeah. The Chatterton <laughs> is like, just like, it's it. excessive. Like, come on. Okay, we get it. You're Thomas, not a Jew. You're not on. a Jew. We got it. We got it. But before we get to that, uh, what's going on? My grandparents are in town from Boca Raton. It's been a very fun visit so far. Your grandparents um, live in Boca. You're from yeah. Long Island and your grandparents retired to Boca. Yeah. This is, I had no idea. But Keeping like the this... dream alive. <laughs> what else? What else? What else can I shock you oh, with? Oh my God. I was in a sorority. No, no, no. <laughs> that we know. Flat iron my hair in high school. I still do sometimes. I don't even know what that would look Did like. She really is it, is it curly? Is it naturally? No, but I used to have really long hair, and it would just be like, mm. like even now the smell of like burnt hair is just like it's very it takes nostalgic. You back. Yeah, it does. Very it's, strong. <laughs> like that really crisp, like straight hair. Anyway, my grandparents are great. They got. Um, they're basically the only people in Florida who do not. Well, first of all, love Obama and hate Trump. And so they got a call from like an actual person from the Trump campaign. And my grandpa said, I'm not voting for dumb Donald. And if I gave you any money, I went to Trump University. And I was like, damn. <laughs> you, and it was like, grandpa. He, was, he didn't know they were calling. He just like, had a very, because it took me a while. I was like, wait, you would have gone. To, oh, you're saying you would be that dumb that, that you would uh, go to Trump University. He just had, that, we he said, had that ready. As we said during my childhood in the 1990s, oh, snap. Oh, I mean, snap. It was amazing. He had that insult ready to go. Yeah, like unholster. ready to go. It was just like, it was locked and loaded. <laughs> I was like, dumb Donald, that's catchy. Wait, so are you telling me that all of their um, bocce and shuffleboard friends down in Boca are for Trump? Yes, I think everyone thinks, the thing that I hear from them is that Everyone says, "Oh, he's he's self-financed. He's he's not beholden to anyone." And that, with the the older set, is very important. And I think that they're all a little bit like they think Hillary's really bad for Israel. Oh my! I think God. those two things are enough. I'm so glad I've never been to Boca. I lo- it's fun down there. When you're from the Guyland and you decide to relocate, well, they're not is, from there. Where they're where are they from? Well, it's a long story. My mother grew up in. Silver Springs, Maryland, and then Chappaqua, and then they moved to Brazil. My grandfather worked in Brazil, and then Mexico City, and then London. But so he was make... in the Mossad. <laughs> Speaking how, of Brazil. We say the CIA. Is Ben back? Ben Cohen is ben back Cohen as is of back like 6.30 this morning. Is he Cohen? famished? He's very hungry. Uh, he, I gave him a hug. I was like, oh, damn. You all, you all bones, boy. <laughs> ben was in Rio covering the Olympics, and he would get up at 9 a.m. and take a bus an hour to the arena, then stay at the arena till midnight. And then take a bus home and the for like the had, first 20 days. And the arena had one restaurant. There was like not that much. Yeah, there was like one, one place to eat, one cashier and like 5,000 people. He had a lot of rice and beans. So wow. we got we to fatten him up. And does he get a little vacation now? I think so. A little vacation now. Uh, well, thanks for asking, but JJ's hanging in there. 
um, I got some amazing mail from some listeners with advice on caring for a a dog, for a senior dog, a dog who's in her last days. And um, the animal deaths is really sad. And he's your bachelor dog. He is. He's the dog <laughs> I got before dog. I had before I had a he's wife. He's seen some stuff. He is the oh starter dog, if you will. So, How's Franny the cat doing? Franny the cat has she, come out of the basement a few times. She's healthy, so like, nobody cares. But it's like, Ask do you like think she'll this will change years. the dynamic? No, I don't think it'll change her dynamic because JJ doesn't pay any attention to Franny when she does peek her head up from the basement. Archie does. JJ's always on her sofa. And Franny is a conversation for another time. We have, as you do, we have a... Special um, needs cat? We have a special needs, emotionally challenged. Like, our pet needs a support pet. Franny needs a support cat. And that she doesn't have That would be very funny if that support cat were the little vest yeah. and like would just like push Franny along. Yeah. Well, speaking of neuroses, a little news of the Jews. Oberlin's greatest faculty anti-Semite, which is, you know, that's a, there's a competition for that one, but I think she wins. Uh, Professor Joy Correga is at it again. This is the woman who posted anti-Semitic 9-11 conspiracy theories to social media. She has since been put on leave by the school while they ask themselves, how the heck did we ever hire this whack job in the first place? Meanwhile, on her Facebook page, one friend of hers posted about the discredited conspiracy theory about the Khazar Jews masterminding the slave trade <laughs> and usurping the identity of the true African Jews. And that post was liked by two people, one of them, Karega. So tablets own Yair Rosenberg, who apparently monitors Joy Karega's <laughs> Facebook page, basically wrote something saying, like, isn't this a little anti-Semite-ish to be liking an anti-Semitic post? I do have to say, you know, I don't think people are accountable for the like the tweets they retweet or the posts they so like. So retweets don't equal endorsements? Retweets don't equal endorsements and, and likes don't equal endorsements. I just endorsements. think if she's being monitored, if her social media presence is being monitored for just this problem. By Yair. No, by the school. <laughs> they're, they're reviewing it. Like that's what they're looking into right now, supposedly. So it's like I would imagine one would be a little more cautious about like what they fave and retweet. I don't know. Uh, you know? I think you she's such as if you going. hate the Jews, you hate the Jews. Well, it's stronger than you. I like it because I learned about a new conspiracy theory about Jews. You didn't know about that one? No. That we're not actually the Jews? That we're, we're not? Like, we're the Khazars. Yeah. And the original Jews, you know, the people with the, the original Torah wisdom. You didn't get the call? Are this <laughs> other community. You, you were not home? We usurped I'm have a landline. There's a call last Wednesday. <laughs> you know who's a beneficiary of that conspiracy theory is the usurpers from Israel, including their high school students who took home the silver and bronze medals in a recent computer science Olympiad held in Russia. This proves that despite the stereotype of Jews as just a bunch of strong, flexible gymnasts and judo masters, we, 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 do, actually, have, we do have some intelligent, we have pretty good heads on our shoulders. Nerdy. Yeah. I like that this summer you could have gone to the Rio Olympics or the Computer Science Olympics in Russia. And musical genius Lou Pearlman, who managed the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC to worldwide domination and also bilked them out of lots of money, has died in prison where he was serving a 25-year <laughs> sentence. By the way, my grandmother's worst nightmare was that she would turn on the evening news and a guy with a name like Lou Pearlman would be arrested for financial fraud. Like, like you're not helping anyone. Right. Insofar as the, the eyes of the world were on Jews who, and the eyes of the world already thought that all Jews committed financial crime, the mm. idea that Lou Pearlman... Was in jail for financial crime. Thank God my grandmother didn't live to see Bernie Madoff. But it this was, was her. It was also my grandmother's worst nightmare. And one day she did turn on the evening news and guess who was arrested <laughs> for financial crime? Her son. Her but at son. least that was a badass. Yeah, yeah. That this was is like guns. white collar. Still a financial crime. Anyway, Lou, Lou Perlman, we got to say it. Bye, bye, bye. And in keeping with our musical theme this week, uh, Sia. 
performed in Tel Aviv recently, and she's now being sued by a bunch of angry Jews. Apparently, she performed a lame 65-minute concert set. And also, according to the Jerusalem Post, the Megatron screens behind her, which were supposed to be showing her, were actually showing performances of Kristen Wiig and Gabby Hoffman, the one who has all the pubic hair that we see on episodes of Girls, dancing. I would sue, by the way, if if I that, went to but see. But you know that that's the, it's the music video, right? So but the apparently Kristen, they're mad about that. So they are mad that it, and it wasn't like synced properly to the performance, and they couldn't see pictures of her. Like mm-hmm. it was like this is the most. No, it's amazing. I, Here's why it's, it's amazing. amazing what they'll sue for in television. You know, you know that joke in the beginning of so, Annie Hall. To be this clear, there's a class action lawsuit yes. for their money back for like eight yes. million. Shekels. And here's the thing. This is literally the joke Woody Allen tells in the beginning of Annie Hall. It's like, we're going to sue because this performance, not only was it horrible, but it was also so short. <laughs> what, are you, what are you complaining about? I mean, right. this is another thing. Speaking of like Jews behaving badly and suing, like why are you, what, what you don't are you like doing? a concert, so you're going to sue the performer and like the people <laughs> who brought her over. At a time when people are, there's so much pressure on people not to perform in Israel. It's like, why are you? I love this. Like, what, but this is my right, favorite thing. It was actually, only 65 minutes, from, from, this thing wait, that I hated. This? From the Jerusalem Post. Even the live vocals felt impersonal, as the artist never once addressed the crowd, mentioned what it was like to be in Tel Aviv, or bantered in any way. So, she, so it sounds like she sang. She sang. Hey, Sia, why don't you issue. say shalom? Why don't you Tell say nice you love is. the Jews? I mean, this is why crazy. Why don't you say, uh, you no know, you like the falafel? What is wrong with Next you? time someone's like, actually, I don't want to perform in Israel. It's be like, okay, I get it. Poland has moved to outlaw the phrase Polish death camp, or at least however they say it in Polish. Under the new proposal, which has yet to be passed by parliament, it would be punishable by up to three years in prison to refer to Auschwitz-Birkenau, Sobibor, or Treblinka as Polish rather than Nazi camps. It wasn't our mothers nor our fathers who were responsible for the crimes of the Holocaust, said Zbigniew Ziobro, Poland's justice minister. They were committed by German and Nazi criminals. So three years in jail for saying that these death camps were Polish. Um, this is some really this is like Trump like stuff going on in Poland. I hear you. And here's the, I really like Poland. I I, actually, I think it's an amazing country, and I wanted you know I only wanted to succeed and be happy. It's the most <laughs> Polish thing you could say, right? right. Uh, but 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 they uh, should live and be well. As 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 we have uh, this. <laughs> don't worry about me, Poland. I'll just sit here in the dark, all alone, and worry about you. Um, but I think, and this relates to a lot of other things we've been talking about in this podcast, once you start regulating language, once the thing that you do is like, don't say the word X, you have to say the word Y, then you really have conceded uh, everything. Then morality crumbles into dust. Here's my question. And when it's punishable by years in jail, come the fuck Here, on. Here's my question. Can I now not travel in Poland because I've called them Polish death camps? Do I have to stay out? Is there a warrant going to be out for my arrest? Yes. Have you called them Polish death camps? I'm, I'm, I'm about did. to. They are Polish death camps. <sighs> I just think we should be calling it like the correct term. And it's a, it's a Nazi death camp. Like, I don't think you could call it a German death camp. Like, that would be problematic as well. Right? Like, let's let's get there. Let's get, let's get, let's I, tangle there. Well, but then this is a Talmudic, wonderful no, Talmudic question. Then, then what makes the death camp the death camp? Is yeah, it, let's not even is it, it death the people camp. who work there, the people who built it? <laughs> Maybe it's a Jewish death camp as the Jews were the ones doing the death. So that is a more... And the camping. Cr- and the camping. <laughs> who camped at the camp? The Jews did. It is a Jewish death camp. Poland, the Jews we cool? Are the ones, we the, cool with that? The Jews are the ones concentrating on things. That's true. Right? Finally, uh, for those of us who can't go to Poland anymore and have to live here, some news of the Trump. It has come out that his foreign policy advisor, Joseph Schmitz, Herr Schmitz, 
when he was inspector general of the Pentagon, lectured one of his underlings, allegedly, on Holocaust denial theories. In his final days, he apparently said to underling John Crane how, quote, the ovens were too small to kill six million Jews, according to Daniel Meyer, who also worked there and who filed a complaint about this. Meyer also said that Schmitz was known for bragging about having fired the Jews there, though apparently he never got around to firing Daniel Meyer, who was around to hear Schmitz say that the ovens were too small for six million Jews. Um, now, here, this is the point where Stephanie Butnick, being overly precise, would say not all the Jews were killed in ovens. Some of them were shot. No, no, some of no, them no, were thrown no. in pits. I'm not, I'm well, not, none no. of them were actually killed in ovens, uh, which, right. they I were, mean. They were incinerated after they were killed. Sorry, Trumpkins. Oh, Trump, his people can't even get their Holocaust revisionist theories right. Upcoming live shows. September 19th, we will be at the Jewish Community Center of New Haven, Connecticut, with our first ever returning Gentile of the Week, Colin McEnroe. Converted. What? He's Jewish now? That's yeah, a joke. he will no, be. No, 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 no. We'll circumcise. There will be a live circumcision of Colin McEnroe there and Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman, who will be Jew of the Week. October 27th, we'll be at Hebrew College in Boston. November 17th at Beth Dedek in Toronto. February 10th, Temple Israel, West Palm Beach, Florida. You might as well make your winter trek to West Palm coincide with our show and come see us at Temple Israel. And I will be at the Lansing Lee Conference at Canuga in Asheville, North Carolina, October 16th through 18th. For more information, go to canuga.org. I just like saying that. I feel like I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. Canuga. I've been hearing, I'm hearing that word a lot. Canuga. And you will keep hearing it. Our guest Jew this week is Justin Sakoffs. He's the creator of Magnetic Shul, which started out as a toy designed to engage kids in ritual synagogue life. That's like the holy grail. You're going to make kids like synagogue? Holy cow. It has now evolved into a larger line of developmentally appropriate toys for children to use to learn about sacred spaces. Um, we have a bunch of Magnetic Shuls here. We also have Justin here. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. Thank so, you, guys. So... Um, so you sent me, I mean, we get a lot of swag at Tablet. We have like tefillin boxes rolling in. We have kipot galore. We Lulavim. have Lulavim. We have strimals. We have like, we have, we actually murder badgers. People send us badgers to be murdered, to be turned into strimals. Um, yet this, somehow this, the, your little magnetic toy box of magnetic toys has, um, it's the, one of the very few that's migrated to my house. Oh, beautiful. So you want to take us through this? Like what, what are we, what are we? The swag you it? keep. Yeah, what is... are we? The swag that wins. <laughs> what are we? What are we dealing with here? So it's an eight by ten by one box. You open it up. You have a backdrop of a sanctuary inside of it, and then you have over fifty magnets of the people and props you would encounter in shul that you get to play with and make do things in shul because the things it's that, fun. They, that they do in shul they, exactly. So you get to keep your little hands busy. You got people like men and women, boys and girls of different colors, stripes. Now it's egal. This woman has a talis on. Right, you got it. And. Um, there's no mechitza, so it's Although like... Although I would say yeah. it doesn't... Well, well the doesn't, center of the box could... Just center, be. The center of the box. <laughs> it's basically a lunchbox. It it's a metal lunchbox yeah. mm -hmm. you, that you open up and prop up, and then and it has like a bima with a with a Torah and lots of mm -hmm. people who look like... People you might see in Shul. Yeah, like, old, like an old, old guy, people. an old yeah. bald guy, a woman with a talus. Right, you got your candy man, you've got your tables, you've got your boy, you've got someone I, I will who looks say like my some, son, too. Some experiences, you know, may vary because, you know, in, in my Shul, for example, this doesn't represent my Shul, who I love, uh, which I love uh, because, you know, the people in this lunchbox all appear to be Jewish. Uh, which doesn't really <laughs> capture my show. Well, uh, come on. What does the Jew really look only like? Only 25% of whom are probably right. Jewish in any given moment. <laughs> the rest are just there to be coarse culture. I have to give you credit, though, because there are people of, like, this. there are different skin tones in here, and I feel like it does accurately reflect what you see in the real world, and I feel like you could have, like, 
Right. That was my first thing when I heard about this. More I was sort of like, what do they look like? Right. More importantly, there are also varying degrees of, of annoyance, right? Some of these people look very happy to be there. And this, like, lady, this, guy's like, this lady is like, quiet. Why are you bringing kids into shawl? When's this, the kiddush? When's kiddush? <laughs> this guy's like the synagogue president who's always Justin. like, pay yeah. your dues. Thank right? you for at least calling him the president. Yeah. Most people called him the rabbi, but I'm so glad he's no longer the rabbi. He's now the president. That's you. Oh, oh no, no. I yeah, assume this guy, that's he's you. Not, he's that's not me. the rabbi. Yeah, that's the rabbi. That guy's the rabbi. <laughs> Excuse me. No. That's a very offensive term. Why? That I equate, As a fat American, that I equate, we prepare proportionately challenged. I, I, I equate sage-like wisdom with, you know. Now, yeah. I have a serious question. Now, this woman, he, this woman here with the little little clutch, the little right. handbag, and the fetching red dress, <laughs> she's she's a, she's on the hunt for a husband. Now, what else is she for? Or Come on, you're there to meet someone. Well, I have to say that women <laughs> oh, yeah, do no. look a lot, like, cuter for the most part than the men. Like, they're dressed. Yeah, what's two wrong ladies with you? in red dresses. Justin, why do you not And then like we have, fashion, like, the guy in know? a sweater vest. And I feel like... I mean, this guy's wearing sandals. He's our Israeli. Oh. oh. Well, no wonder you can't see my feet right him. now, but, you know, I've got my sandals on. So how is this being received? What are people saying? People are loving it. <laughs> I mean, the fact is is that when you I'm have... I'm every, Everyone's saying, look, kids shouldn't be in shul. Let's see, there's at least in the past month, four or five articles about parents and their kids being shushed in shul. And it's like, well, why is that? Why are they not being welcomed, which... The clergy is saying we should do. The parents want them to be welcome because they don't have something that's developmentally appropriate for them to be doing. So that woman that you say is sitting there uh, or standing there with kind of this mean grimace on, well, she's the one who needs to have this oh in her God, hand and pass blood. it to the kid. So are you telling me that my kids could play with a magnetic show in shore? You better believe it. <gasps> Oh my God. So, are you amazing. then in the next iteration of this going to have little cutouts of kids playing with magnetic shul in, in your magnetic shul? In, in the well, magnetic shul. And then you'll make there another is one. Magnetic shul magnet. magnet sh yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> it, so, was the idea that this would actually be a toy at synagogues mm -hmm. for kids to play with in synagogues? Yes. So, when parents grab their humash or their sidor, the kids can grab this and play with that while they're waiting for the Torah to come out because that's like the most exciting part, but lasts all of five minutes. And this is for the rest of that time. Oh my God! There are very excited-looking kids in so, here, though, too. So maybe well, that's is, that, know, is just, that designed to like? Yeah. You see them smiling, and you you want to smile. You want to smile. The if blonde smile, boy looks, just looks like a excitement. little too happy. He looks Wait, like he's I don't planning have a blonde something. Boy. So the, oh yeah, he looks the, like the he like boy, wandered right? in. Now, Justin, how yeah. old are you? Off the street. Uh, thirty-three. You're thirty-three. Okay, you haven't been doing this for thirteen years. Tell us no. about your journey. Like, <laughs> what happened between Morristown High School, Morristown, New Jersey? And and today went to McGill University where I met my wife and realized I should be getting into Jewish education and inspiring kids to as be one Jewish. does in Canada. In Canada yeah. Right? yeah, it happens. Uh, followed my wife back to Boston. And then we went on this crazy journey of moving around the U.S. to include Vegas, Greensboro and now Chicago, um, having kids along the way and also realizing like, hey, teaching is fun. But what I really wanted to be doing is learning and playing and engaging kids Jewishly. And that's how this whole thing was why born. Why focus on shul? I mean, that makes a lot of sense. But why focus on shul, which is kind of universally, you know, understood to be an, an institution, uh, mm -hmm. shall we say, in decline? Well, we're going to change that a little bit. Tell me. Let's see. We've Tell got also your backgrounds of magnetic Seder. Oh, okay. For, or magnetic Shabbat. Oh, this is the new stuff. We're going to, yeah, you guys yeah. get to see the this new stuff. This is Seikoff's And everyone 4. else 0. can see it. Okay. It's still um, in beta. Online. So, yeah. You know, the fun part is we've got your sukkah. Oh, this is a sukkah. Show that there. Oh, so you can add this as a background. Add another background. So you it's can... not just Magnetic shul. UJA Federation meeting. <laughs> Magnetic Hadassah. <laughs> Here you go. I'll give you one for that. Magnetic sisterhood. And then you get this one, yeah. which is your board meeting. Or your, or your dining room. <laughs> but a finance <laughs> committee. <laughs> but That's when this guy's like, pay your dues. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine what if you had this also around a board meeting to ask the serious question of like, what does our show look like? Mm -hmm. And who's there to engage? And who's there? 
Like let the adults start thinking so about it. So middle aged people can play with magnetic oh, shul as, as a kind of diorama to help to, to sort of ice break. And the and, answer would be mm-hmm. let's to to capture that. Let's remove some of these people. Uh, let's let's like leave two of those people. This right. is what our show looks like. <laughs> Kick out the annoying people. You mean no, like the people. In general. Oh, oh, I see. All, he, he likes all the, the building. I see. So then the question is, how can you bring them back in? And you got to now start thinking about that strategically and start planning that. Well, you know what? Sometimes to do play is the best way of doing it. You've seen a lot of people play with these, right? Mm-hmm. What is the most disturbing scenario <laughs> you have seen anyone play out <laughs> with in, your in creation? the boardroom? <laughs> take a take seventh graders. And give them this. That's what I'm asking. And that, like, no, no, like seriously, that's the age there. And then this pretty it's lady not too bad. is humping this little it's boy. <laughs> penis jokes, shofars jokes. get into, thrown into ears. You know, it's like those arrow into ears. Oh, yes. yeah. Luckily, wild, only wild. into ears, and then a little bit this more. Pomegranate. But we're gonna stick with the ears for now. This, this lulav is uh, very erect looking. <laughs> You gotta yeah, have so dollar candle have, too. Let's be honest. That's true. There's actually a lot of like phallic things. God, I'm basically that seven grader. Just it, put the Lula and Etrog together. You're and, ready for the Chag. And how um, how is this being distributed? How are you uh, getting it to the people? Um, direct mailing from us at Magnetic Shoal, uh, magneticshoal.com, and then also we're on Amazon and uh, you know other gift shops too throughout the country. We are not trying to do wholesaling. Yeah, Magnetic Shoal, Egos Media, which is our larger company that we want to do because we realize if we have Magnetic Shoal, Magnetic Seder and Magnetic Shabbat all have to fall under something bigger. Do you want feedback? Because so, my kids have been playing the, with yeah, this for six months. Yeah, always love feedback. Uh, I don't know if this is if this is the latest one. If they got thicker since eight or okay. ten months ago. They were too thin. My kids were ripping the heads off the people. <sighs> okay. Kids are wild. That says yeah. more about your kids. I was going to say your kids are. <laughs> they're wild, but they're not that strong. I mean, they're they're. No, they're Justin can tell you that okay. the kids are in like the three percent of wild American Jewish. Were kids. my kids that wild? It's what you do in the magnetic schools proves whether or not like you're a sociopath <laughs> or a Jew. <laughs> well, I, you know, but the magnets are also from Israel, so we maybe need to go talk oh, to an Israeli manufacturer yeah, on that one too. That's that's. The I think that's your first problem. <laughs> I think they're cheating you. Not that Jews would ever do that. They're dead they... sea, special Dead Sea magnets. <laughs> we get a little thicker on the magnet, less on the paper. So, so what? I mean, before we take our leave of you, tell us, like, if you if you order a box of these, let's say you get the magnetic shul, you mm-hmm. have this this metal lunch box filled with little Jews and and Jewish ritual implements inside, and you open it up, do you just hand it to your kids and say go crazy, or is there is there curricula? Are there curricula involved? So. The first idea is you can just give it to the kids. We're working on the curricular right now. It's right now digital on our website. And then for Rosh Hashanah, we will have a little activity book of activities you can ask your kid, um, of questions to prompt learning and really have a meaningful shared conversation about that space. Because my goal is to inspire that kind of Jewish curiosity and learning in those spaces where we don't want to be shushed. But if we're talking about that space and learning positively, I don't think you can be shushed. You guys just want to play and learn. Justin Sagoff's creator, director, CEO, CFO, visionary. COO, and visionary of Magne- this amazing MagneticShul.com. Thank you for coming on Unorthodox. Thank you all. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. 
This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our Gentile of the Week is Paris-based writer Thomas Chatterton Williams. And we were remarking earlier, that is a very Gentile name. Yeah. Like, there is this no... is overdoing it. Chatterton, really? We get it. Okay, it's you're not a Jew. It's Chatterton. It's, it's really good. It's, it's true. Supremely it's Throckmorton Goyer. Morton Biffington Chatterton Williams. And he's Paris-based now. He's an <laughs> expat on top of everything. Uh, he's, the, he's the author of the memoir Losing My Cool, and he's written for The Times and Harper's and the London Review of Books and The New Yorker and all sorts of places. As I said, he currently lives in Paris, where he writes a weekly column for the American scholar called, and this is very Gentile too in its own way, The View from Rue Saint-Georges. <laughs> so, so I just want to give a little backstory here. I um, Last summer, I picked up your book. I've, I think Amazon recommended it to me. You know what? Oh, yeah. Like knows you and knows other stuff mm-hmm. you've, you've ordered. And uh, I think it said, get this book. And it looked cool. And I ordered it. And I loved it so much that on vacation with my dad and my siblings and my mom, I made them all read it. Oh, also, man. and Thank so you. we only paid retail for one copy. I was about but to say that's you, you got it's the Oppenheimer way. It's the Oppenheimer like way. Sneaking into the movies all over again. So it struck me as an amazing book, and you know, let's let's be honest. Something else was going on at the time too, which was you were writing pretty much the only negative reviews one could find of Tanahasi mm-hmm. Coates. I mean, that was definitely a piece of what was going on last summer. Was like the whole world was saying that between the world and me is the second coming of. Everything. It's, it's, he came down with the tablets. It came down with the tablets, exactly. Yeah. And you wrote a couple reviews saying, well, you know, it's okay, but there's some They're problems. They're not the tablets. With, it's not the tablets, no. right? And so that set me off, having read your book, on reading everything you wrote. So some of it was about that. And then you wrote this amazing essay about what it's like to be a black man having a blonde daughter um, and sort of like what's going to happen when we're fully, It's not when we're all fully miscegenated. I mean, is that kind of, is um, that the world we're heading toward? This essay became the seed of, of what's going to be my next book, uh-huh. um, which I'm currently working on. And it's interesting. I don't know that we're all going to be miscegenated. I think that that uh, would be a lot longer in coming than potentially us transcending the idea that skin color differentiations and nose width and lip uh, thickness uh, means anything more significant than differences in hair color. Um I don't think there's any necessary reason why human beings have to organize ourselves around these uh, these qualities, and we haven't always. So my book is more um, a meditation on how the shock of my daughter's appearance forced me to confront latent assumptions that I just carried within myself about blackness, racial lines that actually exist. My mother's white and my father's black, but I was born in 1981 and kind of at the tail end of... Uh, just this unquestioning belief in the one drop rule, which kind of always organized American life since since plantation days. Nowadays, with Barack Obama, and once I got to university, I met a lot of kids who never would identify themselves according to one drop logic. But when I was growing up, white kids kind of just accepted that my brother and I were black, and black kids are used to seeing uh, uh, people of all kinds of, of, of colors and accepting them as black if they define themselves that way. So I never even thought of myself as biracial and fully expected to have, you know, because I'm mixed but I'm black, I expected to have a mixed but black child myself. And what was delivered to me is this little <laughs> Like an bundle. Aryan bundle. It's an Aryan Scandinavian <laughs> bundle. A Scandinavian bundle. So congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she would, she would do just fine, fine in World War II Germany. I mean, she's... 
They would like her. They yeah, would... I mean, as long as they didn't know about you, they would. I mean, she's because there's a picture on the New Yorker website with your piece, right? Oh, or on the, the VQR, VQR, yeah, yeah, Virginia Quarterly Review, and she's she's a super duper blonde kid. I, I was. We were. We have some very good friends who live in Stockholm, who happen to be two of the few brunettes in Stockholm. And we visited them, and they have a young child. Uh, we visited them a couple times with Marlo. And uh, I would take her to a coffee shop, and I would turn around from my cappuccino, and I would be like, which blonde? <laughs> so it's my kid Angelic baby. child. It's my black baby here. <laughs> you know, and that was when I started to write the essay, because it was, I was like, man. Because when she was born, I was still clinging to the idea that... Um, that I was going to raise her as certainly mixed, but as 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 black, and I and and now I want her to understand that these are just these are really what we're talking about when we talk about black and white and things like this is is much more culture and ethnicity than it is um, any kind of genetic truth. And so I want her to be I want her to have black consciousness, but I think I I don't know that I would be doing her any favors if I had her walking around arguing the point about how she physically looks uh, in certain contexts. So I don't know how she'll come to define herself, but, you know, my father tells me when he was growing up in the 1930s in Texas uh, under segregation that he had classmates that looked just like my daughter and my niece. My brother has a, uh, a baby with a Russian wife uh, who's a bit tanner, but blonde hair, blue eyes as well. My father told me that that was nothing abnormal in the, in the South. Um, there were it, lots of black people. Who there were black people with blue eyes. typically black. What but I love most, yeah. by the way, uh, sorry to bring the conversation down like 10,000 notches, but is your father's uh, lexicon of describing all kinds of people. Yes, she's based, a Palomino. Based on yeah, horse exactly, uh, exactly. <laughs> features. He came to Paris uh, when she was about three months with my mom to meet her. And I was like, I was just kind of like, you know, it was the first time he was going to see this this daughter of mine, you know. Uh, and I was wondering what he would see in her. And I was like, you know, she's a bit fair, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> he was like, awesome. She's just a Palomino. You know how many Palominos <laughs> I grew up with, you know. These terms, I was just, I did a reading in Paris uh, a couple weeks ago, and I read this piece, um, and then afterwards there was, a, there, there was, there were drinks at a, at a cafe around the corner, and an, old, an older woman in her 60s, I would want to say, American woman, pulled me aside, and she said, you know, that piece really resonated with me, and I'm like, wow, that's cool, this, this older white woman, I crossed over, you know, the confines of identity, and I reached somebody different than me. And she was like, "I'm an octoroon," you know. <laughs> I was like, "What?" You know, how many of the, uh, you know how love, many are see, walking around? I know those words are not fashionable anymore. Wow. But as the person who's been very publicly on our website saying, "I kind of love the word Jewess just because it's old school." Like, <laughs> it's I got love a ring. I love octoroon. I, I, mean, I don't want to, you know, these words. They they express something. They express you know? something, right? You know, they they mean more than just what they literally mean. They, they have. Do. Yeah. They have a like a swerve to them mm -hmm. that just saying one eighth black doesn't have exactly. And you know, back in the day, Octoruna was fully black because you could, you could split it down to one thirty second before right. before you were allowed to define yourself as a white man in certain states. Right. right. So right. Octoruna is like you're not even close. You're not. You're you're, you're, <laughs> you're real brother. Yeah. Something that comes up in a few of your pieces is this um, parallel you see with where you are now and sort of this situation that like assimilated secular Jews find themselves in where yeah. you can not like pass, but you, you've got, you've gotten beyond the confines of what your ethnicity says, you know, should happen. And so what, what do you do? And then you also sort of reference like the idea of intermarriage and how to raise your kids. And I sort of was fascinated by that. I was wondering if you could. Yeah, sure. Because I find a lot of uh, parallels with how some of my Jewish friends and their parents have moved through this because 
part of what the struggle is for is that you then have the ability to define yourself and you're not ghettoized into certain right. decisions that are pre-made for you based on your identity. However, there's a sense of once it becomes an act of will that if you choose outside of the group, that is some sort of betrayal. And it's hard to ever fully reconcile the two feelings, even though you only have one life to live and you have to, you know, I've basically made the decision. It became very unphilosophical for me. I, I loved my wife and I, and, I, and I couldn't understand why I would deny myself being with a person that I loved based on some abstract idea. Once I realized I, it's possible I could marry a white woman, and, you know, that I myself mixed, I realized that I, I could have children that were different looking than what I had ever expected. But I didn't actually think that it would happen the way it did. But, I, but once I met the specific person, it became less of, a, of an issue for me. You thought you'd have like some sort of swarthy-ish, a little bit lighter, kind of Arab, I thought Italian. my kid would be swarthy. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like me. You thought your kid would look like me. Basically. I thought my kid would look like you. Yeah, okay. But hopefully if she was a girl, I wouldn't want her to have to use Harry's <laughs> blades. But, <laughs> but she could because they're great. Yeah. So we're in a period right now where things have gotten pretty racially intense. Yeah. And, you know, I have seen, I mean, some of the people who um, actually... You, you mentioned that you went to James Baldwin's house mm -hmm. with Rachel Gansa. Is that how she says her last name? Uh, Kazi Gansa, yeah. Rachel Kazi Gansa. And, um, and I had just read her essay that's mm -hmm. in that new collection, mm -hmm. The Fire This Time. And a lot of the people whom you are sort of writing with or whom you know, some of them are, um, are more – I'm looking for the right word here uh, – just to go – very old school. Some of them are race men or race women in a Absolutely. way you're not. Like, yeah. you know, you will see some of them write about what it meant to them to choose a black or black identified spouse. Right. And here you have, you know, you've written about having a white wife and a white child. Is is Are things tense? I mean, is that I, when you are in this position where like you're the guy who's writing about his white family and is okay with that? It's interesting because um, you can be writing from a lonely place in these situations, but I've always thought that the idea of being a writer is you purposely want to be writing from a lonely place. Uh, I never wanted to write in consensus with uh, with what my group tells me I'm supposed to think. I just want to try to honestly figure out what I want to think. And so I feel like um, my first, th th losing my cool was not something that ingratiated me to other black writers by and large. Oftentimes somebody I really respected might reach out to me. And that was very gratifying that I, that, you know, I was able to um, be understood. But it was a lonely way to start a career as a black writer. And this kind of um, takes me further in a direction that estranges me from where a lot of my generation is. But it's interesting when I go and I do readings and I, or, I, or I talk at um, historically black colleges, a lot of black readers have a much more complicated and uh, nuanced view of things than a lot of black writers uh, present as the black view. And so I find that black audiences are very kind of enthusiastic about things that I've written in my messages. So that kind of gave me a lot of hope as well. But see, you must be—you must feel. I can't even imagine what you must feel. You know, when when you read Tanasi Coates, for example, I, I thought your review was right on. I mean, this is this sour, grim, nihilistic view of humanity. Forget race, in which no one has agency. Right? We're all victims of these yeah. big, you know, systemic forces from which we can never escape. I mean, it's a and disgusting. Then at the end, and then at the end, he talks about a cosmic kind of. Uh, justice that will come it's it's, it's really like a frightening you know view of of humanity which which i think you know every every sane and moral person should reject and you see this and this is celebrated not just celebrated but it is made into a canonic text of our time and you know you go home and and then what yeah what do you feel exactly. because it's not just a career thing it's like 
you know, it, this matters. What we do matters. Otherwise, we we would do something that actually paid money. We would not right. be doing this. Right? Uh, although he's proven there's quite a lot of money in pessimism. Right. <laughs> Him and Donald Trump basically yeah. have... Liel's basically mad because Don Hazi gets to write comics for a living now. And that's, and Liel, I mean, what's interesting is Liel is also like a six foot four, no, heavy set, sci-fi and fantasy be, obsessed be, uh, outsider dude. I mean, I he's the white very, Don Hazi. very earnest. If you say this one more time, I will punch you in the face <laughs> because I cannot tell you how ardently I reject this view of mankind. It no, is no, a no, view without hope. I know you do. Uh, and I will never, ever agree to it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Leon uh, Wieseltier wrote something that always kind of struck me on the parallel between um, this kind of thinking, and it wasn't about Tanahasi specifically, but uh, kind of thinking that Jews can have as well about um, it's just easier to believe that the world doesn't change than to believe that the world changes slowly or sporadically and in, in, in fits and spurts. And so I think a writer like Coates, you know, racism certainly is all around us. So as soon as he sees evidence of, of racism, he says, see, I told you, uh, you're not going right. to fool me. But maybe that blinds him from being able to accept that what he's seeing now is a lot different than what he would have seen were he a bit older. I mean, the things that I've seen are so different than the things that my my father is old enough to be my grandfather. He's, he's almost 80. What he saw as a black man in America, it's just, you cannot tell me that things haven't changed um, slowly. They haven't changed perfectly, but uh, but just understanding the difference between his life and mine never really allowed me to embrace that kind of idea that that America was a place where I couldn't uh, flourish. So Because he, my father, flourished. So, you know, that's, I think, something that comes out of a lot of black writing. There's a difficulty in sussing out class from race, and often it overlaps, but these things are not exactly um, synonymous. And Coates grew up as a very lower class uh, or, or lower middle class uh, black boy in a, in, in a very segregated city. And so some of that has to do with his race, but that's a very different experience than the black middle class experience in New right. Jersey that I was more familiar with. Something in your review that resonated with me was when you said, in addition to sort of taking away agency from black people, it takes away agency from white people. So you can just sort of Absolutely. like read the book, which is what everyone sort of seems to be doing and like post about it on Facebook. And then, like, and then you're done. Yeah, like you you don't need to do anything else. Which because is until until, until the climate um, apocalypse comes, that will that will finally wipe out white supremacy. There's nothing you can really do, but you know, you buy his book, you go to his lectures, um, and you kind of assuage your guilt. And I think that you know, he says that he's not here to comfort anyone, but there is a sense of comfort that people get by always being the lead protagonist or the center of the story or even the antagonist. But as long as the story is still about them, he presents a, such a white-centric kind of view that, that I just reject because I think that it actually ends up giving um, white people, and I, I think because I grew up around white people and, and I'm related to some white people, he gives them much more power than I think many of them actually have. And I think that that actually, that kind of discourse reifies the kind of white supremacy that he ostensibly wants to counteract. Right, it's like the, the anti-Semites talking about the Jews, like they control everything. Yeah. It's like, I wish, <laughs> man. If only we did. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm grappling. I, I grew up in Israel, so this race awareness was virtually non-existent uh, because, you know, we're all Jews and no one really... I mean, yeah, you talk about differences of Jews who came from Europe, Jews who in came Ethiopia. from other, other, right, other countries, but it's not, I mean, it's not a seminal chord. So, you know, coming here, it was the first time I kind of had to think about race seriously and... But I, I don't feel, you know, white. I don't think that there's a lot that really connects me with the experience of... Well, oh, so what, what, what do you that's think, what do you think we my, are? I wanted to ask you if you feel that Jews are white. 
I have, since, a, I have, a, have gone first. I have an answer on this, but yeah. you, you go ahead. I was I, I speaking solely for myself. I'll say categorically not. Wow. I think there's you know there's a history of persecution at the hands of some of our friends and <laughs> neighbors. Our white and of people who look like your daughter. Uh, there sure. are there are you know there's uh, there's there's exclusion. There there's uh, there is an ethnic origin in a different distinctly different part of the world that is not white. Uh, or European, for that matter, which is where my family grew up in, for nine generations. Yeah, there was there was a brief respite in uh, Germany for for some centuries, <laughs> but but without that, I mean, no, I I really don't. So here's what I'm going to say: I think that in America today, Jews are afforded the privileges that go along with being white. In most ways, yeah, we are white. Like we are treated as white, and I get the state of like I get all this stuff, but I just don't think. Jews have it particularly rough right now, and I think that because we look a certain way, like we don't—I don't know. I think I think we are. I think we pass as white, and I think that we need to like Im- acknowledge that and embrace that. Pass. Yeah. Because pass implies that you're not actually. Well, I think now in America, like we're assimilated enough that no one like you don't necessarily you can't necessarily tell someone's Jewish. I don't know. I live in like this like perpetual fear of like getting rounded up, so I don't know. So yes, it is passing. Um. <laughs> Yeah, well, Stephanie actually said at the end what I was going to say, which is I think I think Jews are the passers par excellence, mm-hmm. which is to say that we are a community of people who, with some exceptions, and there are black and brown skinned Jews, and there are Jews who deliberately give up their passing by by reading as Jews. By you know, if you're mm-hmm. if you're wearing a yarmulke, if you're if you have side locks, yeah. if you're dressed Jewish, I mean, there are large communities of Jews who have rejected the opportunity mm-hmm. to pass. But no, I mean, it's a community where everyone knows someone who's, whose grandparent was either murdered or narrowly escaped. It's a traumatized community. It's a community where there's a lot of fear. And it's a country where, like, a major party presidential candidate, you know, puts anti-Semites on his team. And major evangelical right. Christians don't care. Who are supposedly philo-Semites yeah. give him a pass for it. So, um, no, I mean, and also, I just want to say, I've actually been rereading some of the stuff I'd read 20 years ago in grad school, which was from Jewish campus publications and underground publications of the 60s. And what you see is that as recently as 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, they didn't see themselves as white at all. And they were actually calling Jews who were the all right Nicks, the ones who wanted to pass and be mm-hmm. assimilated to the country clubs. They were calling them like Uncle Jake's, like Uncle Tom's. <laughs> Uncle Jake. They had a whole oh, rhetoric. Amazing. They had a whole rhetoric that was very <laughs> overlapped one for one with the black power rhetoric mm-hmm. at the time, just saying like, we need to realize our that we are people of color and just because we can pass doesn't mean that we don't have our nationalism and our ethnocentrism mm-hmm. and our own heritage a lot of this was bound up in zionism and and but some of it wasn't some of it was an indigenous american sense that they were an ethnicity with a story to tell and they had mm-hmm. to give up the post war yep. let's get into the country club thing because they were never really going to get in mm-hmm. my father always had a book on his shelf called when jews became white that i've always intended to read <laughs> i think that the thesis was that it was sometime in the 1960s that jews actually were admitted into the umbrella, the tent of whiteness yeah. in America around the same time as, I guess, Irish and Italians. Mm-hmm. But that fundamentally, there's something that uh, is not white about them. I have a lot of very close Jewish friends, both French and American. And in, in France, they're more Sephardic. And so they can right. look a, a bit different than white French. But, uh, but most of my friends have told me that they, that they don't feel white. That they, that they, and my French friends have told me that they feel like they always have like a bag ready, like a suitcase ready. Yeah, we all have them in the studio, actually. <laughs> 
You go to work with it. Yeah. We can actually stuff Stephanie in one of the suitcases and get her out. I'm going to hide under this table for as long as I can. <laughs> um, final question for you. Being in France where you live, mm-hmm. what's it like watching the American like racial moment 2016 from abroad? Like, what, what are you just what are you thinking? France is interesting because it's not a place that has transcended uh, prejudice in any way, but uh, their prejudice don't um, really obsess over over black Americans. In fact, they kind of have an affinity, as Jews, some Jews do, an affinity for black American culture and music and things like that and, and art. And so actually, you know, my primary identity in France is as an American, and that's also kind of a good thing to have. And so I, I'm in this strange position where my present life is one in which my black identity, black American identity, has never figured less in my day-to-day life than it does now. But in my intellectual life, I'm obsessed with it because there's this huge conversation going. And so part of me feels that I've uh, I've avoided something, and part of me feels that um, I'm lucky to have avoided something. Well, uh, we need you back. Move back here soon. All right. I know. I know you're dying to move back to the country. I just need to write that Trump and Black Lives Matter and all a of year it. in Provence and get that <laughs> get those royalties and come back. Get the film deal. All right, Thomas Chatterton Williams. Thank you so much for being our Dental of the Week. This Thanks. That was really awesome. Thank you. All right. Take it easy. crew it is time for some pod biz tonight may 16th i'll be moderating a zoom conversation with rabbi sharon browse and shy held about each of their new books that's at 6 p.m eastern and the final event in my unpacking the book series with the jewish book council and the jewish museum this one's on zoom so no matter where you are i hope you can make it and tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. All right, from the mailbox, Liel, you uh, you got some mail this week, eh? Yeah, I did. I I got some. I can't I imagine what it mail. was in response to that you said last week. I want to read um, one particular note that really touched me. I like your reading voice, by the way. Thank you. It's very. <laughs> he's he's in his Garrison Keeler folksy reading voice. This is from a listener named Emily Einhorn, and the subject line is "Enough of Liel." 
Dear Unorthodox, I love your podcast and look forward to it every week. But can you please shut up, Liel? Enough of his mansplaining ways. He constantly cuts off the guests, other hosts, and especially all of the women on the show. It's disgusting. Shut up his tirades and let the others speak more. His disregard for transgender youth was painful to listen to. Transgender youth have much higher rates of suicide and bullying. But according to Liel, that does not matter and is not worth our time. I love this podcast, but I'm getting close to being unable to listen to Liel anymore. Uh, let me mansplain something to you, Emily. You know what people who believe in liberal, democratic, freeways do? They debate. You know what filthy Stalinists advocate? They advocate shutting down their people they don't agree with. So to quote uh, the great cisgendered, white, uh, patriarchal actor Adam Sandler in the canonic wedding singer, I have the mic and you don't, so you're going to listen to every word I have to say. So the answer is no, we can't shut him up. We can't shut him up. Stephanie, do you feel like Leal mansplains to you? Well, I know Leal. Well, Stephanie, listen, the problem is... (laughs) So, so, you know... I don't think he mansplains to me because I know him well and I know that he's like super respectful. Like he, we, I don't feel that. I under, I, I get that you can hear that. I mean, you guys both like interrupt all the time. Like it's not like I feel. Oh my God. Now like, I feel like this? Mel Gibson and you're the Jodie Foster being like, I know him well. He's actually not a crazy anti No, I think, I think we, you don't realize <laughs> if you don't know someone, you just hear, I mean, they, obviously oh, our listeners know scary. all of us very well, but like, you know, it, it sounds different on the air than it does in this room. I think some, some, some interactions. <laughs> I'm just mad that Liel man spreads on the subway. He actually Liel splains. He Liel on the splays. subway? Oh, actually, Liel's never taken a subway. All right. Another little final letter. I meant spread in my car. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing from to be From one heard. famous Jew to another, from, from Leibowitz to Raisman. Hi, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. As a devoted gymnastics fan and unorthodox listener, I've been disappointed at your recent comments in episodes 54 and 49. Wow, this is a <laughs> devoted listener. About gymnastics and Ali Raisman. While parroting decades-old untrue stereotypes that suggest judges predetermine winners based on politics and backroom conspiracies, you've also managed to give remarkably little attention to the actual accomplishments of Raisman herself. With six career Olympic medals, three gold, she, as an individual, has two-thirds of the number of medals that the entire state of Israel has ever received at the Olympics. Oh, snap. And triple the number of gold. When at the 40th anniversary of the Munich massacre in 2012, the IOC refused to remember the tragedy, she dedicated her gold-winning floor performance to the memory of the slain athletes and staff. Altogether, Raisman is an exemplary representative of her sport, country, and heritage, and Jews everywhere ought to be proud of her. We're so proud of her. On another note, we love her. As a listener, we just think our sports is dumb. On another note, as a listener from Australia, I appreciate that you have had not one but three Australian <laughs> Jews as guests on your show. Ah, now we get to the rub. Given that most people don't know we exist, let alone have a thriving community, this has been really cool and much appreciated. Thanks for such a great show, Alexandra. Look at Tablet, where two of our seven full-time employees are Australian yeah, we're women. We're basically fully Australian. We're basically Australian. Um, I just want to say again that I got some really nice mail about my dog JJ. Um, <laughs> No, Dr. Dr. Bob the Moyle sent me a nice note. Our friend Rachel sent me a nice note from Northampton. Uh, They recommended the Sesame Street clip where Mr. Hooper dies as a way of of dog-splaining death to your children. They also recommended Cynthia Ryland's great book, Dog Heaven, which I love. Um, I'm going to try to get Stephanie to include a picture of JJ in our newsletter. You guys are just the best. We love your mail. Keep writing to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Quickly, some Mazel Tovs of the week. Stephanie? I have a good one. Yeah. Um, So my... 
I think there's like my second cousin. You know, like cousins, you don't know exactly what you're, but your cousins with. So my mom's cousin, and and this is actually something funny that happened through Unorthodox. My mom's cousin, Freya, who lives in Austin, emailed me and sort of said like, my friends were talking about Unorthodox. And then I listened and I heard you. And then she sort of like remembered. And then she said, so anyway, her daughter, um, Ellie, is getting bat mitzvahed in uh, Austin on um, Labor Day weekend. And I wanted to give her a special shout out and a mazel tov. And her bat mitzvah tutor, Malka Dabrowski, is an unorthodox fan oh and God. loves the show and is how um, Freya started listening again. And she actually found out about my engagement before her mother told her because Malka told her oh on the that Jewish, episode. The Jewish geography. It's a so Malka. I just want to say congratulations. I, like, I'm so excited. Malka, I can't be there. Freya. I wish I could be there. Malka, you for real. You for real. It's it's a Rand McNally atlas of Jewish geography. Uh, Liel? So um, our friend and colleague, Marjorie Ingle, uh, has horrible, horrible, horrible politics. But we forgive her, uh, and we love her for her wisdom. And you know who else loves her for her wisdom? The New York Times, who, uh, which ran a beautiful review of Mamala Knows Best this week. And you should all, in case you haven't already done it after listening to Marjorie in last week's episode or the two weeks ago, uh, you should all go out and buy Mama Lindo's Mama Best Lindo's and raise better children. Better children. And my mazel tov is to WEXT Radio. WEXT. In Greater Albany, New York. On the way back from glamping with Rebecca, I was driving along and all of a sudden, you know, sometimes you hit a radio station that's just... They've just got it. They're just song after song, hit that sweet spot of you kind of heard of the song before, but it's also kind of new to you. And then the segue from this to this, they followed this good song with that good song. It's just like the DJs were on. Listener supported Roots Rock, WEXT Radio, baby. I was just, I'm still still on a high from Love it. you guys. That's my mazel tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. It's edited by Shoshi Shmulevitz, whom we welcome as our new editor. And it is produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin, whom we welcome as our new Shira Telushkin. Rabbinic supervision is by Rabbi Jill Jacobs of Teruah, the rabbinic call for human rights for those long letters that she wrote to me. Kosher slaughtering by Melania Trump, who has never escorted me anywhere. Really? No, she, she hasn't. Our website is tabletmag.com. Follow Tablet on the Facebook or on the Twitter at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem. We record at the luxurious Argo Studios in New York, and we will now repair to their sauna. Shalom, friends. <laughs>